So, so God used this man, John War, his fe- Carrie's fellow apprentice, to convince Carrie that he could never live a good enough life to earn God's favor. And so he trusted Christ to make him right with God instead of his own efforts when he was 17 years old. And then Carrie worked as a cobbler for years. And as he worked as a cobbler, he taught himself Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. And the only reason he did that was because he wanted to know God's word. And people would walk in the shop and see Carrie working on their shoes and then see him studying a book beyond the shoe. So they called it Carrie's College, his cobbler shop, because he studied. And he became a scholar and he pastored a couple of small churches. And as he was studying scripture and leading these churches, Carrie saw that there's something that the church uh, was commanded to do in scripture, but the church in his day was not doing. Namely, they weren't sharing their faith, either locally with their neighbors, the people around them, or globally. They didn't send people out to tell others who hadn't heard of Jesus about him. And so he confronted a council of his fellow pastors one day and uh, just wanted to raise up this concern that he saw. And after he finished voicing his concern, they said, sit down, young man. When God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting either you or me. So their wrong view of God led to a lack of action, a wrong action. And his mis- Carrie's missionary concern went largely ignored until a Christian businessman heard him talking about our call to be engaged in missions. And he was like, you've got to tell more people. Like, this message has to be spread. Carrie said, well, I've written a book, but I don't have the money to publish it. So this guy wrote a check and published the book for him. And it turned out to be one of the most influential books in all of Christian history. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians. And in it, Carey argued that the Great Commission was not just meant for people back in Jesus' day, not just meant for the original audience of Matthew's Gospel, but Carey said, no, Christians of all times and all places are called to pursue this with their lives. And that was a radical movement, a radical different understanding from his time period. And that proved to be a catalyst for the Protestant missionary movement as we know it today. And so a missionary society developed, which all that is is a sending organization, one who identifies and sends out missionaries, and Kerry actually volunteered to be the first missionary sent. He was sent to India, spent seven years there before he had any of his friends who were Indian come to faith in Christ. And there were many obstacles he faced, from cultural barriers to opposition, Uh, from companies that didn't want missionaries in India. Uh, There was a fire that destroyed 17 years of his work of translating the Bible, and there were no jump drives back then, so losing paper was a big deal. Uh, There was repeated attacks of malaria and cholera. He was sick a lot. They lived in impoverished conditions. Uh, He had three of his children die overseas. But eventually, God used Kerry and his team that God provided to translate the Bible into over 30 languages. They started a college. They began churches. They formed schools. They printed the first Indian newspaper. They introduced the concept of the savings bank. So in many different ways, socially, civically, even economically, but especially spiritually, God used William Carey and his team to impact the life of India. And we could go on and on if space permitted, but you get the idea. And mostly he's remembered today for this vision that he casted, a vision of being involved in missions. 
By the time Kerry died, he'd spent 41 years in India without coming home. And churches and homes back in England had pictures of Kerry and his family hanging on their walls to remind them to pray for them. But Kerry never saw that because he never came home. He died on the mission field. And when he died, he wanted something very specific to be put on his gravestone. And it's these two lines from his favorite hymn writer, Isaac Watts. Kerry's hymnstone, or uh, his uh, gravestone reads, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. So, so far in our two weeks together, we've been following Matthew's gospel uh, as he progresses towards this very well-known conclusion, this conclusion that captured Kerry's heart and captured Kerry's attention, the conclusion of the Great Commission. And so the first week we looked at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how that gospel message provides all the motivation that we need to live out our call to pursue the Great Commission and be faithful with that. And then last week we saw how just like Christ called his followers to obey him by going to Galilee, we are called to obey the resurrected Christ in the midst of our ordinary daily life. And even as we doubt, we can still worship Uh, just like the disciples doubted, yet they worshiped. And so the goal of the text this week, what God is saying to us this week through his word, is that we are empowered in Christ to actually carry out the Great Commission. We have what it takes. He didn't just give us a task and say, go figure it out, or I hope you can develop what it takes. No, he actually gave us exactly what we need to be faithful, to not just try, but actually fulfill actually live out the Great Commission. So let's read the Great Commission, and then we'll hone in on the part of the passage that we're going to focus on this week. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 say, Then Jesus came to them, to the disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And today we're going to focus on the promise that he gave and the command that he gave at the very beginning of this passage. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. So it's not a really long passage, but it's a really packed passage. And the key to this passage is the word therefore. Anytime you see that word in scripture, you go back and you go forward from it to see what it's connecting. And it connects today for us what we are called to do and why we can do it, how we can actually carry out this great commission. So God is empowering us to be faithful with the great commission by telling us that he has all the authority in heaven and on earth. And empower is a word that simply means to give someone the ability or the power or the authority to do something. If, if, if someone has empowered you, they've made you stronger in a certain area. They've made you more confident in your skills, your abilities. They've made you able to do something. And two ways that Jesus does this is he reminds us that he has all authority, and then he tells us to go on that authority. Very simple, but it's very profound when we live that in our everyday lives. Jesus empowers us to go by reminding us that he has all authority. In heaven, which is the unseen places, the places which are above us, beyond us, the place we think of where God is dwelling, in perfection, in his holiness, 
And then on earth, the seen places, the places that are around us, the places we live, the place of man, Jesus has authority in both places, in all places. He's the Lord, he's the king of the cosmos. And there's a relationship between what we believe about who has the authority and what we do. And that's why Jesus started by saying, I have all authority. He didn't say, go, by the way, I have all authority. No, first believe that I'm the king, that I have all authority, and then go, because our beliefs shape what we do. And we saw that in the story of William Carey, right? Those other pastors, those other ministers told Carey, when God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. They believed this way about God, and so they acted in line with their belief. And Carey was convinced that God was sovereign. Like, he wasn't coming from a different camp. He, he believed that God had all authority. That's what the word sovereign means. Absolute all authority. But unlike the others of his day, he thought that we were also responsible. We are responsible because God is sovereign, is Carey's theology. And we see it in this passage. All authority belongs to Christ. Therefore, we are called to go. And so if we take this claim seriously, that Jesus really is the king, that he really does have all authority, then there's a question that the world will ask us, and honestly, that we might find asking ourselves, we might find ourselves asking ourselves this question and asking God this question. God, if you are all-powerful, if you have all authority, then why is the world the way that it is today? Why is there so much evil and suffering? And I hope and I believe this isn't the first time you've heard that question. But we have, to, we have to grapple with that in order to understand what it means to live under God's authority now. So we see wickedness both near and far. This is how people struggle with this question, is they see loved ones dying. They hear about suicides. They experience them close in their family. They, they see the news every day, and it's filled with bad news. Like last week, a Park City police vehicle was rammed into, and what would cause someone to do that? Well, that's a good question, and that's just close by. And then we hear about the world news, and in war-torn Syria, 4,500 children have died in that war. And so we see pictures like the one that circulated two weeks ago of little Omran, who survived an airstrike, and that picture just breaks our hearts, and it should. We shouldn't be numb to this stuff. How is God the ultimate authority when this is happening on his watch? But is that really the problem? Is the problem really that we don't have a good king on the throne? Or are we approaching the question from the wrong angle? Let's reframe the question and ask, based on the story that we read two weeks ago, the story that we heard of Jesus' death, why would an all-powerful God experience the evil and suffering that Jesus did on the cross when he didn't do anything to deserve that? Why, how can we answer that question of the king submitting himself to being beaten multiple times, to be mocked as a king multiple times? His, the sign above the cross said, Jesus, king of the Jews. They were mocking him. They spat on him. His closest friends betrayed and abandoned him. And then he, he was killed in a gruesome way. Well, that's the question we need to answer first. He must be incredibly good and incredibly loving if God would submit himself 
to that type of evil and suffering, that type, that level of injustice. And you might say, or others that you talk to might say, well, that was then. What about now? What about Omran and so many of the other children and widows who are suffering? The drug addictions, all of the problems in our world today. Well, Christ still is king. We're living in the already not yet time of his kingdom. He is already on the throne. He is not yet fully consummated, fully completed, fully ushered in his kingdom. And I think that dynamic, it's a hard one to live in. I think that might be why the disciples doubted, even though they saw the resurrected Christ and they heard him say "You have all that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, but they doubted is because it's hard to live in this in-between state where he is already king. Like when Jesus came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The king has come, but it's not yet complete. He hasn't yet chosen to exercise his authority in a way that sets everything right. And then we can continue our dialogue with God. Well, why not, God? Why have you not chosen to exercise your authority in that way. If you have that authority, you could choose to do it at any time. Well, God is using our pain. He is using the pain of this world. He's using the problems we see on the news to point out what's the real problem and what's the real solution. And I'm not trying to minimize any other problems when I say the real problem, but this is the core ultimate problem is our problem is sin and our solution is Christ. Problem is sin and the solution is the gospel. Norman Geisler writes, and he, he actually quotes C.S. Lewis when he talks about suffering. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The painful truth is God is more interested in our holiness than our happiness, more interested in our character than our comfort. So the king is leading us to a good place. The king is leading us to victory. And the king knows that the victory is in hand. It's just a matter of time. And so when we ask these types of questions, we have to define the problem rightly. Albert Einstein once said if he was given an hour to save the planet, he'd spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute resolving it. Because if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. The real problem is sin. The real solution is the good news, that God became a man, Christ, paid for our sins. And if we choose to die to our old way of living and live under his kingship, we have a new life. And we live at peace with God now and forever. And without this new life, people go on to experience death more and more and more. And that's why we have these questions. But in Christ... We can experience life in the midst of death. We can experience the gospel so that when we meet other people who are suffering, when we suffer ourselves, we have a hope that's hold, that we can hold on to, a hope that is sure and secure. And the world doesn't need more good news stories. The world needs more good news. They need more of the gospel. They need a faithful witness that they can personally relate to and hear the gospel, hear how it's transformed your life, hear how it is transforming your life. They don't need perfect people, they just need faithful people. And that's what we need too. I talked to a friend this week who's going through 
a difficulty in his life, and he doesn't like it. He's a follower of Christ, but he sees, he's beginning to see how God is using this difficulty to change him and making it clear to others around him in his workplace that he follows Christ. Because they see this difficulty, they know what he's going through, but they don't understand why, how he can have hope and joy in the midst of it. And that's life in the kingdom of God already. That's the living hope. And then we have the not yet part of the kingdom of God. That was my story of my friend was life in the kingdom of God already. But the not yet we see in Revelation 21 when John writes that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. That's the not yet kingdom life. It's coming. It's coming. It's just not yet. And so we get to look forward to that. William Carey said of the not yet life, we have only to keep the end in view, the not yet kingdom that's coming in view, and then have our hearts thoroughly engaged in the pursuit of it, and the means will not be very difficult. And that sounds a lot like, to me, something that many of us who came from River Community Church have heard before. What matters most in the end matters most now. But Carrie added on, in light of that, we have everything we need to live faithfully. See, Carrie said it's not difficult. But remember, this is a man who experienced a lot of suffering. 17 years of his work gone in a fire. I can't even begin to imagine the anguish and the frustration that I would feel. He lost family members to death, his children, he buried them. He experienced disease, he experienced impoverished living conditions. He waited seven years before he saw the first fruit of his efforts. So what does he mean by the means will not be difficult? He means we have what it takes to live faithfully now. That the power that we need is not difficult to acquire. Christ has all authority. He told us to go. Therefore, we have all that it takes. We have what we need to live faithfully because he is the authority. And we're going on his charge, not on our own. We're not making anything happen. We're relying on him to make things happen. So the second way that Jesus empowers us as his followers is simply telling us to go. He makes us able because he's the authority, but we will not experience his empowerment if we do not go. And as I studied this scripture, I remembered uh, my elementary English lessons because this is an imperative sentence. This is a command. It says, therefore, go. And anytime you have an imperative sentence like do the dishes or pick up your room, the subject, you know what the subject is? The subject is you. It's the understood you. And that's what's happening in the Great Commission. Christ is saying, you go. And when I was a kid, I distinctly remember thinking there were full-time Christian servants like missionaries and pastors 
other special people, and then there was everyone else. They did the work, and we just supported them. And I, I don't know where that idea came from, and I'm not, so, I, you know, I'm not here to, like, place blame if you knew me as a kid. I'm just saying that's the way I thought. You know, that was what was inside my little head. I'm just here to say today, I couldn't have been more wrong. The Bible teaches that every member has a ministry, every member of the body of Christ. And, and think about William Carey. He was a cobbler. God turned a cobbler into the father of modern-day missions. Now, Carey didn't give himself that title. It was given to him later. He was just faithful to obey his king. And so that's all we need to do. 1 Peter 2.9 is another part of the Bible that supports the same idea that it's not missionaries and pastors. Yeah, I need to be faithful, and the missionaries that we support overseas need to be faithful, but we all need to be faithful. 1 Peter 2.9 is another supporting text to this argument. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So if that's you, if you've been called out of darkness into light, if you have something to declare, then declare it. Declare it with your life. Declare it with your words, through your relationships. Every Christ follower this passage, this passage teaches is a priest, and that is one who is called by God to serve others for their good and for God's glory. So go, play your role, and discover your role. It takes time to discover your role, but, but know that nothing and no one can stop you from being used by God in the life of someone else. Nothing but you. The devil can't stop you. Christ defeated him on the cross. So the only way that you can be stopped is believing a lie, you know, that he tempts you to believe. But you get to choose. We live under the king. He has all authority, so we have what it takes. And the most famous of Carrie's words, if you want to go home and Google him, you'll probably find this, says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But the much less well-known quote that Carrie gave when his father said, why are you going overseas? Why are you doing this? Carrie replied, I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. I can plod. And in my opinion, that's why he was such a good linguist, so good with languages. You just have to plod when you're learning a language. You just have to keep plodding. And if you combine those two quotes, the famous one and the less famous one, you get something like this if you summarize them. God is sovereign. He will do great things. And we are called to be faithful. We're called to plod. And that's exactly the message of this passage. God is sovereign. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Therefore, you go. You plod. You be faithful where God's placed you, and you just watch to see what great things he will do. Plotting is something everyone can do. It's kind of like defense. When I grew up playing basketball, I liked defense because if you, can't, if you want to, you can do it well. Plotting is something that everybody can do. The question is, will you? Will you plod? And you won't plod if you're not convinced of his authority if you don't trust his authority. So if that's you, just repent today. Say, I'm sorry, I haven't been trusting your authority. I'm ready to trust your authority again. And believe him. Believe that he's the king. 
and that he is leading you to victory. He's leading you to good things. Not easy, but good. And so let's look at some practical applications. Overall, the application is follow your leader. Live under the king. And we can do that as we listen to God through his word. And I'm not saying read your Bibles. I mean, read your Bibles. But don't just read your Bible. Listen to the person. Submit to the person. The point of the Bible is Christ. He's a person, not an idea, not a text. So listen to God through his word as you meet with him. And then process the world around you as it really is. As you read the news, as you hear people tell you about the NFL season as it kicks off, process the world around you as it really is. What's the real problem? What's the real solution? As people come and vent to you at work, think to yourself, okay, use it as a training opportunity. What's the real problem? What's the real solution? And pray that God would give you an opportunity to speak the truth in love to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and to those who don't trust him yet. And in all of this, know what God is doing. God is making disciples of Christ. And so if you've never led someone to faith in Christ, or if you've never con- like consistently and directly contributed to someone's growth, just ask God for that opportunity. And in the context of this passage, this is a great promise for us to hold on to. He has made that power available for you. So just ask him for the opportunity to lead someone to faith in Christ, to help them grow, and then start plotting. So no matter who you are, if you have Christ, you have the power that you need to be used by God for his purposes. You have what it takes. And if you don't have Christ, if that's not you, I'd encourage you to talk to me or talk to someone else you trust today because that's the most important decision you'll ever make. And it's really impressed, it's easy for me, it's probably easy for most of you to be impressed with other people like William Carey or like the guy on the stage with the microphone. Don't be impressed, don't be impressed. Listen to Carey's self-assessment and I agree wholeheartedly with this. This is what he wrote on his gravestone. This is what he had written. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. That's his self-assessment. On thy kind arms I fall. The arms of Jesus are kind, and they're available to anyone who would come. Anyone who would come. So Carrie was used by God greatly, but Carrie was a man in need of Jesus, just like you, just like me, every person who ever walked the face of the earth. All authority belongs to this Jesus, to this Messiah. And so we are called to go. Let's go on his authority. Pray with me. Lord, we acknowledge that you're the one with all authority. We also acknowledge that uh, we struggle to live under it as we should, to live under your kingship. So thank you for using your authority to forgive sins and to change us. We don't have to stay in our slavery to sin. You've set us free. So we want to go on your power. We want to be faithful on your power and not on our own today. Thanks for being the solution to the problem of our lives and of the world. God, we commit to plotting. We commit to being faithful. And we trust that it won't be in vain. Even if we don't see the pictures on the wall of people praying for us, we trust that you will use us for your glory.